Good morning. Oh, man. This morning has kind of felt like hanging out with a toddler a little bit. Lots of spinning plates today. Hello, Zoom. Hello, Internet, as Mike already greeted you. But welcome to this space. God, y'all, raising a toddler is really, really difficult. I don't know if, if you realize this, and I don't know if it's different in 22 than it was in 92, but it's hard. No, we're saying no, it's not. Yeah, that's just what it is. People keep wondering why the birth rate is going down, and I'm wondering if any of these people have spent time with a three-year-old. Um, especially, uh, I think maybe we should replace like any high school health classes with just mandated daycare service, right? Just send a bunch of sophomores to volunteer at a preschool, and that should do it, you know? Um, anyway, it just feels like uh, I've said something along this in the same vein every time. Uh, that uh, I get the microphone here at Storyline, but um, man, it's, it's three and a half right now is just tough. The regressions and the tantrums and the throwing of everything, it's, it's exhausting. And I, I will admit, Allie and I are, are the lucky ones, right? First off, for now, we only have one kid, and our kid is objectively the cutest kid on the planet. Um, it's just look at that ham. Man, he is just the best, um, except when he throws things. Um, he really, really is super fun right now, despite you know the sleeping regressions and the potty training regressions and the broken picture frames and the fingerprints on the TV. For all of that, there's like 15 magical moments worth celebrating that just melt your heart. Um, are, we, are we have friends who are getting married in Orlando in March, uh, and we get, to, we get to go down there. And of course, we're in Orlando, so we're going to do Disney. Um, and so we've started, we've started prepping him for this. And so now every morning he wakes up and says, Mom, Dad, we going to Disney today? And it's really, it's, it's very cute, um, except when it's like right in your ear and your head's still on the pillow. And, um, but we, it, we have to be honest with him and say, hey, buddy, you know, no, not today. And, and then the throwing starts again. And so maybe we're, we're guessing we maybe should have waited maybe a couple more weeks before we told him about that. Um, I think one of the biggest lessons that I've learned in parenting over these years is uh, that you have to be strategic when choosing the hills that you die on, right? I know that probably sounds like a cliche at this point. Every parent of adult children in here is just face palming and be like, this is what we've been trying to tell you for 30 years. And I'm sure you have, but now I'm listening. So if you could keep saying it over and over and over again, that would be excellent. Um, there's just days where you just don't, got it in you, you know? Like where it's just too cold outside to go out and play and build another snowman, or you're just too tired emotionally and physically to be a parent. And I know it's not traditionally okay to say that, but I feel like it's the truth. And, and honestly, it makes it easier when I'm able to admit that. So um, yeah, this week in particular, it's just, it's been something, it's been something else. My doctor my doctor thinks I have high blood pressure, and my counselor is adamant that I deal with the stuff in my past, and I think those two things are probably connected, right? Um, and on Tuesday, while I was messing with my calendar, I accidentally clicked a button that deleted it, all of it, my entire Google Calendar just gone, past, present, future. It, it, now it's kind of freeing. Now I feel loose, and I feel not tied down anymore. But it, I missed multiple coffee meetings this week, and that has, that has not been fun to deal with. And then to make all of that worse, my barber chopped off all my hair. 
and I'm really self-conscious about it. It's really, it's really ruined my week. Um, and so, no, I don't want to play the Spider-Man match game for the 14th time this afternoon. Um, what I've learned over the last four years of parenting is that honesty with yourself is probably the most important lesson that we can teach our kid. At least, at least right now, that's what I think. And sometimes it's okay to have four nights of chicken nuggets and another episode of Ultimate Beastmaster um, because we have to pick the hills that we're going to die on. Uh, I don't know. Maybe I'll regret it. But I don't want to hide the hard stuff from him, right? I don't, I, I hate that it affects him so much, but I want to be real and I want to be honest and I want to be transparent with my son because that's what I hope for him someday, that he can live a life that's open and honest and transparent. Um, I, I want to have it in me all the time, right? I want to want that 14th time. This week it's just been hard to, to dig it out. Now, I do realize that you know, my stuff is, is fairly small potatoes in comparison um, to some, but it, it's, it's weeks like this one where I, I just don't feel like myself, you know, or maybe better put, I don't feel like the person that I want myself to be, right? Since our move to the solarium, which has now been three months, uh, Mike has been walking us through the Beatitudes, and the Beatitudes are these ten verses in the Bible, and they serve as kind of like the preamble to, to Jesus' ministry on earth. They serve as the, the introduction to what we know as the Sermon on the Mount. It's two or three chapters in the book of Matthew where he just kind of lays out um, his, his philosophy of life. But these are the values that are going to go on to be, uh, they're going to go on to weave together all of the lessons and parables and anecdotes that fill up the gospel. And so I asked Mike if he could summarize kind of the main theme or the thread that tie all those together. And this is what he said. He said, the Beatitudes are an invitation from Jesus to us. And like a GPS reroutes us in response to traffic and road conditions, the Beatitudes reroute our lives into and through people, activities, places, events that are counterintuitive on a human level to what we assume the abundant, flourishing, or blessed life is supposed to look like. Essentially, these values, these principles, mantras, commissions, whatever you feel like you want to call them, the Beatitudes are meant to reroute and reorient our lives towards the grace and the love that Jesus has already distributed into the world. They're not some to-do list or a contract that's meant to appease somebody. They're not a rule book that you have to follow in order to participate. They're an invitation to live a life with unimaginable grace and unconditional love. And man, if there was ever a week that I needed a rerouting, it, it feels like it was this one. One that, one that neuters the urgency of the rather superfluous matters in my life. I don't, I don't want my days to be ruined by my barber or by my calendar, and I want to work past these things and not live under the weight of my past, but take hope in my future and what is to come. And I wonder if these Beatitudes will allow us to do just that. Thanks, guys. Um, so we have two Beatitudes left. We've got two more weeks, two more opportunities for us to figure out what this rerouting, this reorienting of our lives could mean, what a new way of living could mean for us, uh, a way of living that puts us on a crash course towards people and places and endeavors that lead us toward the abundant life that God has already 
distributed on this earth. And so this is, this is Matthew 5.10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. All right, now that is a sentence. Uh, there's a lot going on here. And over the last weeks, I think Mike has done an excellent job dissecting these Beatitudes, uh, giving us the context and perhaps the intention behind what they mean and what they can mean for us. So I'm going to try to do the same. No guarantees, though, right? When we were storyboarding for the schedule about who was going to speak, I was, I was really gunning for the peacemaker one, right? Blessed are the peacemakers. Um, and instead, I got persecution. So uh, we'll see. It's a big ask. Uh, blessed are those who are persecuted. Um, it's something light for us on this Sunday. Um, I'm not sure how we're going to process this, but let's start with a little context, right? Jesus is being incredibly purposeful in the use of his word persecuted here, right? He uses it strategically because he knows who he is talking to. But do we? Do we know who he's talking to? So we're going to rewind to the end of chapter 4, where it says this, Jesus traveled throughout the region of the Galilee, teaching in the synagogues and announcing the good news about the kingdom. And he healed every kind of disease and illness, and news about him spread as far as Syria, And people soon began bringing him all who were sick. And whatever their sickness or disease was, or if they were demon-possessed or epileptic or paralyzed, he healed them. Large crowds followed him wherever he went. People from Galilee, the ten towns, Jerusalem, all over Judea and the east of the Jordan River. Now, that may not sound like anything that really matters to us, but it's really, really important. Matthew, our author here, is being really, really specific and why he brings this up. You see, Jesus is, Jesus is speaking to a group of people um, who would know exactly what persecution felt like, right? It not only an internal persecution, disease and, pos- and possession, but also a systemic persecution, right? The author Matthew, who's one of Jesus' disciples, he lists four different geographic regions even after he's already made the point that there's groups coming from as far as Syria to follow him. But he circles back to it. He mentions it a second time. And so why does he do that? Um, It's because they all shared something. They all had something in common. Despite where they came from, they were all, they all fell under the thumb and suffered at the hands of the Roman government. They suffered incredible persecution uh, by the Romans, violent military takeover religious oppression, super taxation, like 80 to 90% taxation. And what we start to see happening is that these communities start to break off into ideological factions, right? They start, they start to break off into these four different pockets of thinking about how they're going to respond to Rome. And so I want to go through those real quick. The first group um, was known as the Pharisees. Maybe you've, maybe you've heard of them before. They're all throughout the Gospels. Um, But what we know about the Pharisees is that over anything else, this group emphasized the law and the letter of the law. And so they they started to realize that this this persecution and this oppression at the hands of a national superpower was becoming unavoidable, right? So they tried to figure out what can we hold on to if we're going to constantly be rebuilding our temple and having to, to fix our traditions to fit the new narrative. And so they emphasized the letter of the law, and it became about having the right faith and the right beliefs. There was a second group um, 
They were known as the Sadducees, and we hear about them less in the scriptures, but they emphasized the exact opposite of the Pharisees. They, they were all about tradition. They emphasized the temple and the sacrifices, and it was all about doing the right things. The Pharisees were about believing the right things. The Sadducees were about doing the right things. Um, and they kind of went back and forth, and um, the Sadducees were much less... Um, Rome curious, if you will, than the Pharisees. Like the Pharisees kind of built this mutual relationship with Rome while the Sadducees uh, kind of resisted and wanted nothing to do with them. And so these two groups made up kind of the middle of the ideological curve that we're seeing happening in this version of Judaism. But, there, but of course there's outliers. And so there's two other groups, um, the Essenes and the Zealots. And so the Essenes, they, res they responded to the Roman takeover by just picking up their ball and leaving, right? Like, they, they're just like, we want nothing to do with this. You can have it. We're going to take everything we own. We're going to take our people. We're going to take our faith, and we're going to move into the hills. Um, if you've heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls, these ancient manuscripts um, that we get kind of of the first translations of the Bible, the Essenes are responsible for those. And what's thought is, like, they had to take their faith with them, and so they recorded on their own these scriptures, and then that's, that's where we found them in these hills and in these caves. And then this fourth group, uh, I think we've heard of, of this group before, the zealots, right? And they were, they were the revolutionaries. They wanted to burn it down, and they didn't care the cost of what it was. They're like, if Rome's going to burn us down, we're going to burn them down, and they were actively trying to, like, hatch plans in order to overcome the military oppression that they were seeing at the hands of Rome. And so all four of these different groups would have been represented in Jesus' audience. And in fact, not only were they in his audience, they were in his disciples. We can trace the roots back of the original 12 disciples to all four of these different groups. For instance, Matthew, who's writing the book, he's, a, he's actually a tax collector. He would have fallen in this Pharisee camp, um, and he would have kind of been partnering with Rome in Jerusalem, where Simon, he's a zealot, right? He wants to burn it all down. They are both disciples following Jesus. I wonder what those lunches would have sounded like, right, <laughs> between Matthew and Simon. But the thing that they had is they had a common enemy. They all were against Rome and were suffering at the hands of Rome. I'm wondering if any of this is sounding familiar to 2022. Maybe, maybe not. Anyways, Jesus sees this um, as an opportunity. He sees this moment wandering through the desert as an opportunity to unite this group of people around the only thing that will free them from their oppression. And so he wanders up a mountainside, and he begins to preach this Sermon on the Mount, and he starts with these Beatitudes, which set the tone, like I said, for everything else to come. So when we hear Jesus say, blessed are the persecuted for righteousness' sake, he's using these words very, very purposely with his audience, with his, within his context, because every man, woman, and child would have understood exactly what persecution meant. And as well, each one of them would have had their own understanding of what righteousness meant. And that's what he's trying to shift our minds and transform our minds around. This is actually the second reference to righteousness that we see in the Beatitudes. 
couple weeks ago, Mike, Mike uh, shared with us, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Another version says, for they will be satisfied. And what an incredible promise that is, right? I wonder how long it had been since any of this group, any of the people in this group would have felt satisfied, where they would have been fulfilled. To be given some kind of hope that this was a possibility must have sparked so much optimism. Wait a second, I can be satisfied again? I don't care what it's going to take. I'll hunger and thirst for whatever as long as I can feel that satisfaction. The majority of this group, like I said earlier, is going to line up with, the, with one of these four factions. So they would have known their version of righteousness. And their mindset would have been something like, if only everybody in this group could hunger and thirst for my version of righteousness, then we would all get along, right? Then everything would be perfect. Then we could get everything together. But Jesus circles back to this um, here in verse 10 where he says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. And see, it's fair to ask yourselves, wait a second. I thought righteousness was the anecdote to persecution, right? If I hunger and thirst for it, then I'm going to be satisfied. You mean satisfaction comes with persecution? How do, how do, we, how do we line this up, Jesus? And it's a, it's a really, really fair question. But I think the mistake that each one of these groups, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Essenes, the zealot, is that they believed that if only they could believe the right things or preserve the right traditions or separate themselves from the world or, even better, burn it all down, that then the persecution would come to an end. And it was all because of their righteousness. But it seems like, according to Jesus, that righteousness is something very, very different than that. You see, the, the mistake that each one of these groups was making is that they were confusing rightness for righteousness, right? They emphasized having it right, having it perfect, having it correct. There was, it, this is the way, and there is no other way that matters. The, uh, the author and philosopher Peter Rollins, he writes a book called The Orthodox Heretic, which I can't recommend more highly. It's, it's this little book of parables. It's fun just to read one a day. They're two or three pages. Um, but it's filled with these short stories, these short parables that he wrote. Um, and they wrestle with kind of some of the, the big themes of ethics and religion and morality. Um, really, really excellent uh, uh, collection of works. But one of his parables, uh, he writes about Jesus. He's traveling and preaching um, in every town that he comes to, uh, a, a parable that starts similarly to the Gospels as we hear them. And he's preaching a sermon everywhere he goes where he says, when someone asks you to carry their pack for a mile, I say carry it for two. Right? There, was this, there was this common practice in that time of the world where Roman soldiers could just ask any Jewish person they saw, they could tell them, carry my pack. And it was, it was kind of this humiliating, embarrassing, shameful thing and you just had to do it. You carried their pack for a mile, and you set it down, and you went back to doing whatever you were doing. Well, the leaders of this town that Jesus had just come to were so inspired by this commission of their Lord to go above and beyond that they changed the laws within their communities where now you had to carry the pack for two, that when somebody asked you to carry a pack, you had to carry it for two. And so Jesus returns to the town later, 
and he sees that the law has changed. And so as he's preaching, he says, you say carry their pack for two miles, I say carry it for three. <laughs> right? So Jesus wasn't trying to change the law, right? He's not trying to be right or order a system into rightness. He's trying to change our hearts and transform our minds, right? He's saying that the way of righteousness is so counterintuitive that we will only know it when we feel the resistance to it. It's like weightlifting, which is not something I enjoy doing, but from what I hear, um, we know it's working when we feel it push against us, right? To get faster and stronger, we have to feel the resistance of the weight. And if it's not pushing hard enough against us, what do we have to do? We have to add more. Um, we have to add more resistance so that we can get stronger, so that it can tear our muscles apart, right? Literally, that's what happens. Your muscles are being torn apart so that it can come back together stronger and quicker and better. Another way to think about this is that you can't make progress without friction, right? We can't, it's hard to run on ice because we can't get a grip. It's friction that allows us to take one step forward to make progress. It's counterintuitive to the way that we normally would consider the world working. So these four groups, the Pharisees, Sadducees, Essenes, and Zealots, they're all making the same mistake, right? They've defined their righteousness by their right ideas, their right ways, by their correct and impermeable way of resisting the kingdom of Rome. But that's just it, isn't it? Each one of these groups has put all of their energy into something to come, something beyond, some version of life that they can only dream of if they can just do X, Y, or Z. They had their own perfect idea of what it meant to remove the resistance. But what Jesus is saying is that righteousness is not about resisting Rome, but receiving heaven. It says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And this is the choice that Jesus is giving us to make. Any, any Matrix fans in here? Yeah, the first one's a masterpiece. Don't waste your time with the new one. That's just my personal opinion. Sorry. Um, I love this movie. Um, and for anybody who knows and has seen this, you'll, you'll, under know, you'll know it's about to get really weird right after this. It kind of takes a dark turn down weirdness and then comes back, and it's great at the end. Um, but, and maybe this clip is just a little bit too dramatic for us, but the point that Lawrence Fishburne's character Morpheus is trying to make here is that the way of life that Neo or Keanu Reeves has been living, it can change, right? That there is a new way of living in the world but to find it, to experience it, is going to come at an incredible sacrifice of everything he's known to be true. He can choose to stay in the world as it is, or he can see the world as it was intended, right? Out of the prison. He says, Morpheus says, all I am offering is the truth. I don't think that's different than what Jesus is asking us. 
right? Do you want to continue to live a life oriented, whether in compliance or resistance, oriented towards the kingdom of Rome? Or do you want to be rerouted, reoriented towards the kingdom of God? And if so, here's what it will take. Here is the red pill for you. It's going to take being humble. It's going to take being vulnerable and honest and brokenhearted. Holding the power we do have in reserve for a greater purpose than our own. It's going to take ongoing, never-ceasing desperation for truth and a withholding of retribution even when it's justified. It's going to take a self-cleansing of our own judgments so that we can be arbiters of peace in this world. That's the red pill. That's the choice that we can make to experience and receive the kingdom of God. But at what cost? Because to that, there's going to be a ton of resistance. Just like straight bar arm curls, right? It's going to tear away at the muscles, the very fibers of our natural being, the ways of orienting our life that have become so passive, that we've become so accustomed to. I would assume that we all have our own idea of what's right and wrong, right? What is, what is loving and what isn't. And sometimes those ideas get us into trouble, uh, especially if you're me. Um, I get into lots of trouble, a lot of it. But, and trouble makes us feel like we're standing up for what is right. We're so adamant about what we believe is true that when we, when we feel any resistance to it, we're like, yeah, standing, I'm standing up for what is right. And it's tempting to see that as persecution, right? It's tempting to see that as persecution. But if I thought that's what Jesus meant, then I'd have no trouble standing up here and telling you exactly what I think about everything. I only do that with my wife. Uh, But I'm sure I'm not seeing the whole picture, right? I'm sure I'm not seeing all of it. I need each one of you, each one of you in this room, each one of the people that God has created in his own image to help me figure it out, to help me see what I'm missing because there's no way that I can see the whole picture all at once. So fighting for what is right is not the same thing as being persecuted for righteousness because it's not about rightness. Right? Jesus is trying to reorient our lives towards goodness. And where right is certain and perfect and impermeable, goodness reflects the beautiful nuance of God's creation that is visible in every single one of us. Every single person in this room reflects the image of God. And yes, even that person, right? Even that person. It's when we can see past our own rightness, and as well as their wrongness, that's when we get to bear witness to the image of God. That's where we get to find the kingdom of heaven. The the Apostle Paul, in his letter to the Galatians, he writes this, and I'm not sure I can sum it up. Anything that I've been saying, I'm sure I can sum it up better than this. He says, it is obvious what kind of life develops out of trying to get your own way all the time. Repetitive, loveless, cheap sex, a stinking accumulation of mental and emotional garbage, frenzied and joyless grabs for happiness, 
trinket gods, magic show religion, paranoid loneliness, cutthroat competition, all-consuming yet never satisfied wants, a brutal temper, an impotence to love or be loved, divided homes and divided lives, small-minded and lopsided pursuits, the vicious habit of depersonalizing everyone into a rival, uncontrolled and uncontrollable addictions, ugly parodies of community, and Paul says, I could go on. This isn't the first time Paul has warned us. Or he says, this is not the first time I've warned you. You know, if you use your freedom this way, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. But then he says this, but what happens when we live God's way? He brings gifts into our lives, much the same way that a fruit appears in an orchard, things like affection for others, exuberance about life and serenity. We develop a willingness to stick with things, a sense of compassion in the heart, and a conviction that a basic holiness permits all things and people. We find ourselves involved in loyal commitments, not needing to force our way in life, but able to marshal and direct our energies wisely. Legalism is helpless in bringing this about. It only gets in the way. That's in, that's in the book of Galatians. That is... That's from the message. Paul and Jesus are trying to say the same thing here. The life that God wants for us, the kingdom of heaven, is not found in living the right, perfect, correct way. Paul says that legalism is helpless in bringing this about. This isn't about being right. It's about having and living a life where you no longer have to be right. Where love, joy, peace patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control are the only operating procedures that we find ourselves living within. And it's when we live that way, this is what I believe, I believe we get to experience the full and flourishing and abundant life that God so deep, deep, the life that Jesus wants for us, right? The life that that song is calling us to, the so, the so will I. If you are willing to lay down your life for the eight billion parts of you that we can see in all of your creation, so will I. That's the life that Jesus wants for all of us, is the life that he modeled for us. He didn't just preach and teach these words. He lived them with every breath, and he's desperate. He's desperate for us do the same. He's desperate for us to find the good life, the flourishing life, the life that I imagine that all of us are yearning for. And in his time on earth, in all of his experiences and conversations, in all the parables he told, and the persecution he experienced, and the joy that he found in his community, it would seem that he only found one hill worth dying on. So friends, May you know that the God of the universe wants nothing more than for you to live a full and flourishing life. May you hear his calling to reroute away from the kingdom of Rome and towards the kingdom of heaven. May you know that the resistance you experience is a reminder of the overwhelming and abundant grace that is for all of us. May we, together, lay down our swords of rightness so that we can pick up our cross 
and follow Jesus, Jesus up the only hill worth dying on because we know that the kingdom of heaven is on the other side. And may the grace and peace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. Friends, have an excellent Sunday.